Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today, as we continue our series on Genesis with Dr. Neufeld, we'll take a closer look at the creation account of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. So let's listen as we begin today's program entitled, Why the World Exists. All of us remember how we learned things in school. We sat in nice straight rows in front of a blackboard or a whiteboard and listened to a teacher. We took notes and received reading assignments and memorized stuff so that we could repeat them at exam time. That's how our educational system teaches us. But God did it differently. His truth came through a series of historical events. And we learn it in the stories of history. There was a man named Adam and he had a wife named Eve. They had a terrible journey into sin. They had a number of kids, and the oldest one of their kids killed his brother. Society went from bad to worse as Adam and Eve's descendants formed powerful nations and alliances, and things became so bad that life, a life that was originally created to extend the rule of God, actually became cheapened. Eventually, God sent a flood and wiped out perhaps billions and billions of people from the earth, and all that was left was one family and life started all over again. Eventually, the descendants of Noah built a city and were about to repeat the terrible cycle of evil, but God scattered the inhabitants of that city all over the earth. And out of that scattering of people, God chose one man, Abraham, through whom he would bless the whole earth and through him bring the man who would redeem the earth from sin. Do you know what you can learn from that? God's truth comes in real events of real history. God's truth got worked out in the real lives of people. This earth, or the history of this earth, is a vindication of the glory of God. Before we get to the story, Moses, who is the author of Genesis, wants to tell us how everything started. And as we have noted, the very first line in our Bible is the sentence, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what have we just read? I'm going to say here that many of us have so many assumptions at this point that we actually don't ponder how this sentence is supposed to function. We just assume we know. And because we think we know, we don't actually ask ourselves if our assumption is correct. So let's look at the sentence again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is the function of that sentence? Should we understand that sentence as a summarizing statement Or should we understand it as a sequential statement? Let me explain that. For most of us, Genesis 1 verse 1 forms a function very much like a newspaper headline. Dog bites man, say the bold letters of the headline. Then as we read through the article, it tells us how it came to be that a dog bit a man, including all of the details of the story. Most of us read Genesis 1 1 like that, never even aware that there's a possibility of reading it in a different way. But what if Genesis 1-1 is not a summarizing statement or a headline at all? What if that verse is the first sentence in a sequence of events? What if all of the cosmos is now created in verse 1, and whatever occurs after that is not an explanation of how God created, but rather the next in a sequence of events in which God imposes order and meaning on the universe that he has already created in verse 1? What if, after verse 1, the sun, moon, stars, planets, asteroids, and whatever you have out there was brought into being, and what if 
All God ever told us about how he made that universe is summarized in one sentence in which God tells us, I made all that. You probably are getting the point that I actually believe that this is exactly how we should read Genesis 1-1 as the first in a sequence of events. I think that because as we continue to read, you're going to notice that God says in verse 3, let there be light and there was light. Well, at first glance, that would make me believe that Genesis 1-1 really is a headline. For if the sun was already created, why would God have to later say, let there be light? But as we carefully read through Genesis 1, we're met with a number of problems, especially if we read Genesis 1-1 as a headline. We note that on the first day, God says, let there be light, but it's not until day 4 in verses 14 through 16 that God creates the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. How can there be light on day 1, but no sun until day 4? See, that's a problem, and we'll have to work with the text to try to understand exactly what it is saying. But let's notice another problem. On day two, God says, let there be an expanse that separates the water from the water. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is significant if Genesis 1-1 is a headline or a summarizing statement for where did the water come from since we're never told that God said, let there be water. So here's how I read the text. From the very first day, When God says, let there be light, we have to assume that what the text leaves unsaid but understood by all who read it is that the passage means, let there be light upon the earth. And even though we are told that God says, let there be light and let the waters separate from the waters, we all know that what we are reading really means, let there be light on the earth and let the waters separate from the waters on the earth and let vegetation sprout on the earth. You see, what Genesis 1 is all about is not so much about the cosmos, it's about the earth. And that leads me right back to Genesis 1-1 and the question, how does verse 1 function? I think Genesis 1-1, as I have said, is not a summarizing statement at all. I think it is the first in an amazing sequence of events that God does. The first thing that God did is create the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. From that psalm we learn that God simply spoke, and all the vast universe with its inconceivable galaxies and their vast mysteries came into being. Everything that follows from verse 2 and on happened after that event. In the beginning, God created the heavens is a sentence that carries a weight of unexplained mysteries, but as we will note, the purpose of the story of the Bible is not to explain to us the scientific complexities of the universe, only that behind all the science of astronomy stands the creative genius of a God who conceived all of it. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And when Genesis says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we know from the rest of the Bible that the focus will not be on the heavens, but on the earth. And so let me repeat the statement that I hope will aid in understanding what we are to read. Everything after Genesis 1-1 assumes the heavens and the earth are created, and everything we read after that now places all the drama of what happens next 
on the surface of the earth which God has already created. Now, it is quite likely that for some time, light was unable to penetrate to the surface of the earth. But one thing is clear. When on day one, God says, let there be light, for the first time, light penetrates to the surface of the earth and is visible on the earth. That's what I think we're reading when we read Genesis 1.1. After that verse, the vast splendor of the cosmos exists and the earth has come to be. Now, if you followed me thus far, we're ready for verse 2. The first half of the verse reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now again, it's important to ask and answer, what am I reading? The key is that small phrase, without form and void. At some phase in the development of the planet, these are the conditions that now exist. But what are those conditions? The phrase formless and void actually comes from a Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu. The word va means and. The earth at one point in time was tohu and it was bohu. If we are to understand those words, we might be well served to find out if there are any other places in the Bible where these words come up. Let's start with the word tohu. In Deuteronomy 32 verses 9 to 10, it says, But the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste, there's the word tohu, in the wilderness. Or here's another example in 1 Samuel 12, 21. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, tohu. Other translations will use a translation, vain or futile. In Isaiah 24, verse 10, the same word is translated as confusion or chaos. So just by noting how the word is translated, tohu can refer to a howling wasteland or emptiness, vanity, futility, confusion, and chaos. What's more, in Isaiah 29, verse 21, it can refer to meaningless or without purpose. At some time, says Moses, after the earth was made, that was the state of the earth. More when we come back. How we understand the opening verses of Genesis is important in the way we interpret the story of creation. Dr. Neufeld has given us a fresh insight to help us read Genesis 1-1, not so much as a summary of the rest of the account, but rather as just one in a series of amazing events that occurred at the beginning. Indeed, we're starting to see what God was doing to establish order when he created the earth. When we come back, we'll look at how creation points to the reality of why the earth exists. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon his supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Moses is not done. The earth was not only tohu, he says, it was also bohu. And here's where it gets really interesting because the word bohu almost never gets used by itself. It only gets paired with tohu. But put together, those two words give us a description of a period of time in the existence of the earth in which the earth must be thought of in these terms. But of course it's no longer like that because God changed all of that. See, there are three places in the Bible where the phrase tohu vabohu gets used. I mean, the first is right here in Genesis 1-2. The second is found in Isaiah 34, verse 11. The verse is found in the wider context wherein God announces that he will bring judgment upon all the nations. The Lord, says Isaiah, has a day of vengeance reserved that is so severe that the streams of mankind will be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. This is an image of the final judgment. And then coming to Isaiah 34, verse 11, we read, But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, that's the land. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out a line of confusion or desolation over it, that's the word tohu, and the plumb line of emptiness, that's the word bohu. I hope you see it. There, tohu vabohu means desolation and emptiness. There's one more place where that phrase is used, and that's found in Jeremiah 4.23. Here, Jeremiah is speaking about the judgment of God against Judah. God says, I looked to the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, tohu vabohu. It was desolate. So can we describe all of this? I think it's clear that what Genesis 1-2 is describing is a condition on earth when it was a wasteland of desolation without any purpose at all, and that's the key. When the two words tohu and bohu are put together, they form a unique meaning of a howling wasteland of desolation without any purpose. And that is what gives the rest of this chapter so much meaning, and that's also why this chapter can never be made to harmonize with the theory of evolution. The very nature of evolutionary thinking is random, purposeless chance, and the very point of Genesis 1 is a God who takes a chaotic and purposeless world and imposes meaning and purpose into the earth. The earth exists for a purpose, a purpose that God imposed onto the creation when he spoke to the earth. Now, before we move on and explore that more thoroughly, let's stop and clear away misconceptions. You know, there are some Bible teachers who will argue that Genesis 1-2 should read, the earth became a chaotic, purposeless world. They argue that this is what happened when Satan fell and the earth was turned into this kind of a mess. And to that, I respond in two ways. First, the Hebrew grammar makes this reading highly unlikely. The Bible just doesn't say that the earth became this way. It says it was this way. And secondly, it's so important that when we do Bible study, not to impose our fanciful ideas onto the text. The Bible doesn't anywhere teach that when Satan fell, the earth was devastated. And because the Bible doesn't teach that, neither should we. See, a basic rule of Bible interpretation is this. We're going to have to content ourselves with what the Bible actually teaches and not run off on endless rabbit trails of speculation as to what we think it might mean if, you know, hint, hint, read between the lines, it said this. Such a practice really is not good Bible study. But right here, we should notice something else the Bible doesn't say. 
How long was the earth chaotic and purposeless? Was it that way for 15 minutes, or was it that way for millions and millions of years? See, I hope you see that since this is not a scientific account, the Bible is not interested in telling us that story. That's why I think it does no good at all to make the age of the earth a kind of a test of orthodoxy. The Bible doesn't tell us how old the earth is. It might be old and it might be young. I don't think I can appeal to Scripture for that. That brings me back to the story I told at the beginning of this series, standing on the the summit of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, staring into a telescope and looking at a supernova millions of light years away. See, I find it staggering to think that when I look into the night sky, I'm actually not looking at something that's happening right now, but I'm looking at how things looked, you know, some of them perhaps millions of years ago. And I think that I don't have to argue that the stars are not really millions of years away. I'm not a scientist, and since my Bible never speaks to the issue, how can I know? See, the Bible also doesn't tell me in what order the heavenly bodies were made or whether the earth was recently created or was created millions of years ago. And we do well to remember that. Yes, I think that evolutionary theory, with its stress on random purposeless chance, unaided development of species is flatly contradicted by this account, but the question of the age of the universe and the theory of evolution are, quite frankly, completely different questions. But we're not yet done with Genesis 1 verse 2. Let's read the rest of the verse. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As we will see, water is a constant theme in this chapter, and so is darkness. God will give light to the earth. He will create an expanse, as well as call for the appearance of dry ground, but we'll leave that part for our study tomorrow. But today, would you notice that in spite of the purposelessness and chaos of the earth as it once was, the Spirit of God was hovering over it. Some have argued that the Hebrew word for spirit, the word is ruach, can also mean wind, and so all this means is that there was a howling wind on the earth in those days. You see, I think the problem with that interpretation is that in all other 17 places in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God is referred to in that way, it never means wind. Furthermore, a wind does not hover as the Spirit is doing here. And so I think the translation in the ESV and in most other Bibles is correct that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So why is that so important? I think this tells us that the Spirit of God, in anticipation of what was to follow, was guarding and protecting and sustaining the earth in preparation for what was to follow. And that brings us to the point. Since Genesis 1 to 11 is all about purpose and meaning that God imposes onto the earth, What then is the purpose of the earth? Well, clearly, from what is to follow, God will pronounce that all is very good only after he has created the man and the woman. Genesis is a story of the purpose of man. It is a story of the role we play as image bearers of God, and that's so essential. We don't exist for the earth. The earth exists for us. The earth is not the center of what it is to be spiritual. Human beings made in the image of God are essential to what is spiritual. I think this must be loudly said. The earth is not supreme, 
But when I say that, I don't mean that we therefore have the freedom to bring ecological harm to the earth. But what I'm trying to get away from, because the idea is not biblical, is the idea that the earth is holy. No, 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 no. That view arises from paganism, not the Bible. The earth must be subdued, as we will see later, and the earth must be made to serve the purposes of man in obedience to God. Now, of course, Christians can never applaud the depletion of our natural resources, but the reason for that is that if we do, we have no way to sustain ourselves. We must not be in favor of deforestation and erosion, the pollution of our environment, and the destruction of a species, for all of this was given to us. We are called to be lords of the earth, rulers of the works of God's hand. God imposed purpose into the chaotic creation so that he might be glorified through man who serves as his representative on the earth. I find the Bible story to be remarkable. God creates a garden and puts man into it, and then with all its twists and turns and surprising developments in the plot, the story ends with man inheriting a new heaven and a new earth, in which the earth finally and ultimately is filled with the glory of God as man takes his place as the servants and image bearers of the God who made us. To God be the glory. John, a great message, and there's no doubt that it's a little bit complex but it's important, and I know it's important to you. Why is it so important? I think it's important that we read Genesis in a natural way so that we don't impose our meaning and then create this unnatural dis-ease between ourselves and what we're sometimes learning in science class or so forth. I think we sometimes create unnatural divisions in Genesis. And I know this has been complicated. Some of you are going to have to go back and just you know, go on our podcast and listen to it twice to get a sense of what this is saying. But I think this will allow us to read Genesis as an unfolding of God's purposes and not to put this passage into a kind of straitjacket that limits its usefulness. I hope this study of Genesis has challenged you and given you new insight into the creation of the world. When we read the text for what it is, putting aside our preconceptions or biases, it becomes more clear that this is a story centered around God's grand design for the earth and for all humanity. Let's have confidence in the wonderful account of a God who has created all things for a meaningful purpose that continues to be relevant today and for all time. Well, we'll look at much more in the creation narrative this week, so be sure to listen again tomorrow in our series, He Made Me Human, with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss a day, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and your convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video. And you can subscribe to our ministry podcast, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. All the details to be found at backtothebible.ca. Our desire is to provide Bible teaching you can trust to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support these Bible teaching efforts, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.